This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Eli Wallach knew, even as a boy, that he wanted to be an actor. In the 1930s, he started after that goal, only to have World War II send him into the Army. But after the war, Mr. Wallach returned stateside to become one of the earliest members of the famed Actors Studio in New York. There, he studied alongside performers who would change the face of American acting. Actors such as Marlon Brando, Maureen Stapleton, Paul Newman, and his future wife, Anne Jackson. Eli Wallach's work on the stage was well regarded. In 1951, he won a Tony Award for The Rose Tattoo. A few years later, a successful parallel career in motion pictures began. His first movie role was in Baby Doll, directed by Elia Kazan and based on a Tennessee Williams screenplay. In 1960, he appeared in Arthur Miller's The Misfits, alongside legends Marilyn Monroe, Clark Gable, and Montgomery Clift. With Sergio Leone's The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Eli Wallach would make what is probably his best-known film appearance as Tuco, the ugly from the title. His on-screen chemistry with Clint Eastwood's Man With No Name made the film one of the best-loved westerns ever. At age 90, Eli Wallach is still working, still enjoying himself. His autobiography, The Good, The Bad, and Me, whimsically subtitled In My Anecdotage, is now a hardcore paperback in your local bookstore. Eli Wallach, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you. To, uh, to prepare for our talk, sir, we had a mini Eli Wallach Film Festival around here. We watched Baby Doll, The Magnificent Seven, The Misfits, and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. My producer and I admired your work in all of them, but wanted to start by asking you if, um, if you and Clint Eastwood had as much fun as it appears you were having in making that movie. Well, he was my mentor, because this was the third of a trilogy that Clint was in. And he said to me, now, don't, don't get fancy, don't try stunts, because it can be very dangerous. So he took good care of me. And my wife and I just came back from Almeria, Spain, last week, where we, I, I was honored. Clint couldn't come because he's editing a movie called Flags of Our Fathers. It, it's going to be a brilliant movie. That was where you filmed some of the uh, the, the, the movie in Spain. Yes, the, the, in Almeria, southern Spain. It was the 40th anniversary of the movie. Wow. Well, it looks as though you were just having some genuine fun in, in playing that Tuco character. Oh, I like him. I, we get along very well. <laughs> I, I was surprised by the praise you had in your book for Steve McQueen. And when we watched The Magnificent Seven, um, I could see what you mean. He did so many small things to portray what his character's thinking and makes what, you know, really is a lot of work in acting look effortless. Isn't that the essence of good acting, though? He drove, he drove you, Bernard, a little crazy. How, how was that? He'd take a pellet from a gun and he'd shake it next to his ear. <laughs> or oh, he, he was a wonderful horseman, Steve was. And you watched him, you know, trying to horn in on scenes. Steve was a wonderful, wonderful screen actor. Twenty years later, I did his last movie. He died a month, two months after that. You pointed out, I think, where he at one point takes his hat and dips it into the stream, and it does, it does steal the whole scene. Yes. We noted a contrast between The Magnificent Seven and Sergio Leone's The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. It's got a strong sense of humor running through the latter, 
and his characters are, are really often more realistic than those of your standard cowboy picture. Was was your method acting approach what uh, director Leone was looking for when he cast you? I, you know, I never knew why he cast me. I thought it was based on the, the Magnificent Seven. Instead, the man wrote a book about Leone, and he said, no, no, Eli did a movie called How the West Was Won. And he said, in it, you threatened George Papad's I was abandoned again. And he had his two little boys near him. And as I walked away, using my finger, I pointed it as a gun, and I went, at the two kids. <laughs> and when Leone saw that, he said, I want him in the movie. Okay. Your first screen role was in, in Baby Doll. We, we thought that was quite remarkable, viewing that film. Uh, would you consider it your favorite performance? Well, it was my baptism, and I, I enjoyed it. Because I, for two years... I had been doing an Okinawan, a year in London, nine months in New York, and on the road. And uh, it was called Tea House of the August Moon. And Kazan called me and said, now, I want you to stop being an Okinawan and come to Mississippi, and we're going to do Baby Doll. And that's what I did. And I, lo I love it because the cast was wonderful, the director was wonderful, and the screenwriter was well, I'd like to add for our listeners that, that I purchased Baby Doll yesterday and that both my Croatian plumber and my Indian drywaller stopped work on my bathroom remodel to watch it with me. <laughs> <laughs> and the consensus was brilliant work by you and Carol Baker. Marvelous, marvelous acting. Well, what about Carl Molden? You know, we weren't that knocked out by Carl. Uh, you know what he said to me? Carl said to me, Eli, it's your first movie, so be careful don't open your mouth too wide, because the audience will see your tonsils and your golden inlays. So there's a scene where Carol Baker's at the top of the stairs, and she says, Hi-o, Silver. And thinking of Carl's advice, I said with my mouth half closed, Hi-o. And Kazan said, What happened? I said, What do you mean? He said, Say the line. I said, I did. He said, Say it again. And with my mouth clenched, I said, Hello. And Kazan said, listen, I don't want the Japanese version. <laughs> Just say the damn line. Oh, he said, Carl Molden put you up to it. <laughs> well, you were one of the earliest members of, of the actor's studio, uh, along, along with Mr. Malden. It set out to break some cliches of, of stage acting. And judging by its alumni, with Marlon Brando, James Dean, Gregory Peck, Harvey Keitel, Robert De Niro, been a rousing success. How, how would you summarize what's now different about acting uh, after the actor's studio? Well, when we started in 1947, we thought we had the answer to all the problems in acting, and we were insufferable. <laughs> you know, all the old actors, the old stage actors particularly, used to look at us as we were freaks because we were using what they call the Stanislavski method. After a while, I learned to use my own specialties, and I would take from old actors what I felt I needed, as well as the young actors. But Kazan and Bobby Lewis, Martin Ritz, and a lot of the directors were very skillful, and we enjoyed the work. Well, it was someone, I wasn't sure who it was, maybe it was Laurence Olivier, summarized acting as saying, remember your lines and try not to run into the furniture. And I was amused to note that there was a debate you noted in your book that you once participated in with some English actors who took yes. some exception to the method that your group was developing. Can you tell about yes. that? That was Rex Harrison, Wendy Hiller, Robert Morley, 
And uh, Kim Stanley and I debated them about the method. And it was a rather tense few moments there because Rex Harrison said, oh, nonsense. It's, it's, it's a lot of nonsense. Just get on the stage and do it. And we said, one English actor said, I want to know, do what? That's why I like this method, because they know what they're doing. And it caused quite a stir in, in the meeting. But there is no magic formula for acting on the stage now. The first 10 years after I came out of the army, my wife and I met, and we didn't, we went, didn't go near movies. We just did plays for 10 years, including working with Charles Lawton, Zero Mostel. That's the way we learned. We learned by acting on the stage. Then the first movies, I, I used to think, no, that, that's easy. Then I realized how difficult movie acting is. It's like putting little dots on a screen and, and not knowing how it's going to come out until, until you finish the movie. And even then you don't know. I have a film coming out in December the 8th. Okay. Directed by Nancy Myers, and it's called Holiday. All my scenes are with one young girl, age 31, named Kate Winslet. And I play an old screenwriter who hates Hollywood now. <laughs> so I don't have to work hard. <laughs> Is that based a little bit on reality? Do you have some bad, hard feelings about the Hollywood uh, system that seems to abuse so many actors? No, my love is the theater. Anne says working on the stage is like being on a tightrope with no net. This August, Anne and I are going to do an evening in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Uh, out in, in East Hampton, we're doing evenings of poetry. We, we keep alert and alive. But I think movie acting is gratifying and, and very difficult. Elia Kazan directed you in, in Baby Doll, and, and you admired him as a director very much, judging by your book, but he was kind of a polarizing figure. Can, can you share some thoughts on Kazan? Yes. Before I did the first movie with him, I did a play that he directed called Camino Real by Tennessee Williams. And it was at a time when he had named names. And it was a difficult adjustment because I grew up in Little Italy in southern Brooklyn, and you never told names, you never snitched. But he was a brilliant director, and I thought this is my opportunity to work with Tennessee, with Tennessee Williams and with Kazan, so I did it. He was going to Hollywood not long ago. He said to me, what am I gonna do? They're gonna, they're gonna boo. I said, just go out there, walk out on stage, and say, I've come 3,000 miles to say thank you, and walk off. But he didn't do that, he brought Scorsese, and De Niro out on stage with him. He had a rough time emotionally, too, having done what he did. I don't think he ever forgave himself, but that's life. Well, we're glad that you kept the subordinate title of your book, quite whimsical, uh, In My Anecdotage. It is certainly a book of great anecdotes. Uh, one we wanted to cite, favorite of ours, you, you were describing your first acting role in college. You're at the University of Texas. You're in a, a murder mystery. A journalism student from Missouri, you noted, played the doctor. His character opens a door to find a dead body. And that student was uh, one of our previous guests, Walter Cronkite. The dead guy was you. Small, <laughs> small world. Now, when, when Walter walked on, he was the doctor, and he had a little black suitcase. And he said to the woman, where's the body? And she pointed, <laughs> she was crying, and she pointed to the door. She opened the door, and I fell out. He opened the door, and I fell out. 
That was my baptism in the theater. <laughs> I was four years in Austin, Texas, and it, it was like being on another planet. But I had a wonderful time going to the University of Texas. The Good, the Bad, and Me is the autobiography of a great American actor who is our guest today, Mr. Eli Wallach. Uh, Mr. Wallach, your, your wife, Ann Jackson, was often your co-star in the theater, and despite actors having notoriously volatile home lives, the two of you have had a successful marriage for 57 years. How, how did you beat the odds? 58. 58, and counting. Because she says, because she's a saint. <laughs> That's no, a we, we, we were lucky because we did wonderful plays together, particularly with, with uh, we did Shakespeare, we did uh, Chekhov, we did, but we worked with one writer named Murray Shisgal, who wrote Tootsie, and uh, we did three plays. One of them was called L.U.V., Love, and Mike Nichols directed it, and we ran for a year on Broadway, and we were in Rhinoceros, which was a great play, and we did The Waltz of the Toreadors, a great play. We're rich. We feel we're rich. You were headed toward your first film in 1953. It was to be uh, From Here to Eternity. Uh, you were lined up to play Maggio, the role that went to Frank Sinatra and rescued his career. The people at the studio, from, from what I read, clearly thought your screen test was superior to Sinatra's, yet it was old Blue Eyes who got the role, won the Oscar, turned his career around. It's been a source of speculation what ha over, over what happened for years. But you tell us in the book what did happen. What did take place? Well, every time he saw me after that, he'd say, hello, you crazy actor. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you, I was supposed to do Tennessee Williams' Camino Real. My wife and I spent seven years with Tennessee doing his play. The Rose Tattoo, Camino Real, This Property is Condemned, and my first movie was Tennessee. So this play... Camino Real was a fantasy and a very odd and wonderfully exciting piece of writing. And I wanted to do it. But they couldn't raise the money, so I auditioned. You read, the, you read that part where I went in to see Harry Cohn? Yes. And he said, well, he looks like a heap. <laughs> Remember that? Yes. And I just finished for a year and a half playing an Italian in the Rose Tattoo. Mm -hmm. So you, you let Cohn have it at that point. Yeah. They, couldn't, they didn't have the money for the, for the play. So I auditioned, and I got the part. Uh, Fred Zinnemann was the director. And he said, you're going to do it, and it's, it's a wonderful role. And, and then the money came through for the play. And I thought, well, I'm an old actor. There's a lot of celluloid that's still there. I'll get other movies to do later. So I chose to do the play. The play was not a success, but I, I thought Sinatra did a wonderful job in, in the movie. I noted that uh, that some after you you left the scene, they decided, well, Sinatra's probably in some ways going to be better because he looks so scrawny and pitiable that it looks as though when he gets beaten up by the MPs, he's just you know he's going to be a punching bag. Whereas you were in pretty good shape, and they thought you might be able to knock around a couple of MPs. <laughs> no, that's none of that is true. The the truth is, I spent two years on stage with Henry Fonda in Mr. Roberts, and I was the only sailor who was supposed to be a weekly. So I didn't work my way up. The next performance I did was a truck driver in the Rose Tattoo. And there, I, I built up my muscles and so on. So when I went to do the audition for From Here to Eternity, I, had, I was pretty muscular. 
but that that wasn't the reason I didn't get he didn't he, he didn't get the role or what. Right. Well, they were, they were just saying, well, if we're stuck with Sinatra, in some ways he'll be better, I guess. <laughs> but they made all kinds of stories up about it. They said Ava Gardner was would sleep with anybody to get her husband to be in the play, the movie, and so all of that is nonsense. As I said in the book, yes, I wish I had played the role, but I I would I wanted very much to play the play. I don't mean to be a hero either. Well, we should clarify that perhaps most famously, for young listeners who don't know this story, that the famous scene in Mario Puzo's The Godfather book, later in the film, they cut off a horse's head to get the Sinatra-like character a coveted role. So it really is sort of part of Hollywood, the Hollywood legend of the 50s. Well, Arthur Miller wrote The Misfits as a vehicle for his wife, Marilyn Monroe. You became the second name attached to that project, thanks evidently to your friendship with Marilyn. Can you tell us a little bit about... Uh, about the Marilyn you knew and her training at the actor's studio under Lee Strasberg? Well, she first arrived in Cal- from California. She was unhappy with what was happening to her in Hollywood. So she walked out of, out of the 20th Century Fox. She came to New York, and a friend of ours invited her to come. She had never seen a play. Invited her to come see me in a play called Tea House, where I was in Okinawan. And she was brought backstage, and we met. And she said, how do you do a play for two hours? I said, well, I've been doing it for a year in England, and now nine months here, so I, I know my lines. She said, can I come every night and watch? I, I said, I don't think they'll allow you to do that. But she did come a lot of times, and we became quite friendly. And then she was invited to go to the actor's studio as an observer, not as a member. And she was in another country. She was absolutely captivated by what was happening in the studio because we would do scenes and she began to think of ways to use it in her acting years later she wound up in england with Laurence olivier called in the, the prince and the showgirl which i saw on the stage with olivier and vivian lee hmm. and here she was with olivier who, who was directing it and was a tough tough director and they didn't get along but anyway, when the movie Miller married her and decided he was going to write a Valentine for her, I was asked to join the company, I think at her urging. It was Montgomery Clift, it was me, it was Thelma Ritter, Clark Gable. The first day Gable and I worked, I, I was in my truck and he leaned on the door jam and John Houston said, action. And I kept staring at Gable thinking, Oh, my God, this guy's the king of the movies. Mm -hmm. And I hope he doesn't know that I never saw Gone with the Wind. (laughs) And he was looking at me thinking, who the hell is this guy with this method, right? Yeah. So we didn't do the lines. And and Houston finally said, what the hell's the matter with you two? (laughs) I said, well, I don't know. I just feel he, he ordered a drink for both of us. We each had a drink. And from then on till the end of the movie, Gable and I bonded. We really enjoyed one another. And he kept asking me. He, he used to do theater before the movie. And we talked a lot about theater. And I, I, I really enjoyed it. Well, there's a, there's a fabulous photo in your book of you, Gable, Marilyn, Montgomery, Clift. You're sitting on stools. Behind you are Arthur Miller and John Huston. Um, co-stars, of course, three of the biggest names in, in film. Yet they all seem to have some insecurities. Um, uh, did your stage background help you stay grounded while, while that was being filmed? What happened was with Clift, with Gable and Monroe, 
is that they broke out of the mold. Marilyn once was sitting with me, and we looked looked up, and there was that famous picture of the standing on the subway thing grill and the wind blowing up her skirt. And she said, "That's all they think of me." I, I want to do Grushinka in the Brothers Karamazov. Right. Dostoevsky, and uh, and they all laugh, but they have not read the book. So she knew what she wanted, and Gable was tired of playing the same tongue-in-cheek role, and and Clift also was tired of playing the leading man, and they all took a chance and gambled on it, and I I, I praised them for it. But no, I never thought I'm, I'm acting with the greats, although I thought Gable and Monroe and Clift and all of them were wonderful actors. Sure. John Huston directed you in that, and he had a remarkable career himself, starting with the Maltese Falcon, running through uh, all the way to the man who would be king and beyond. What was that like working with John Huston? John said to me, I was doing a drunk scene with Gable. Marilyn was dancing with Mon- Montgomery Clift. So he walked over to me. With- Gable and I were sitting at a table, glaring at Marilyn dancing with Montgomery Clift. We sat there, and I was very drunk. In the scene. Mm-hmm. And Houston came over and said, hold it, hold it, hold it. And he came over to me and he said, Eli, do you know the drunkest I ever was? I said, no. He said, yesterday. I said, what do you mean? I was with you all day yesterday. He said, that's the drunkest I ever was. And he walked away. And he said, action. And I thought to myself, he's directing me by indirection. Mm-hmm. He's not telling me how to do it. He's saying... Don't be so drunk, in a way. Drunks aren't that drunk. They pretend to be sober, or they try to be. So the scene changed, and Gable smiled when <laughs> after Houston walked away. But Houston was a wonderful, wonderful, skillful, understanding man. Marilyn's marriage was breaking up, and she could never come to the camera on time. Never. Yeah. In three months. Boy. Houston never chastised her. Never took advantage of her. She had a coach. She had Lee Strasberg coach with her, Paula. And Houston, Houston's attitude was, he knows that she keeps looking over his shoulder at the, the coach, and if she didn't like the scene, Marilyn would shake her head. And, in, and she'd say, I want to do it again. And Houston said, of course, my dear, we have plenty of film. Mm-hmm. And she'd do it again. But what they didn't know was that he had final cut on the film. Only he had the decision to make about what you see on the screen. Well, we, we, we love the story in your book about Houston directing Marilyn. She's, uh, she stops crossing the street, you describe in the book, uh, a couple of times, runs back. Houston asks her, what's wrong? She says she forgot her motivation. <laughs> the, yeah. the director then has to step in to give her some direction. No, then Houston said, listen, I understand. But when you get there, your, your motivation is to keep from getting killed by the cars. <laughs> And she went right across the street. (laughs) That's a great story. Uh, Sir John Gielgud apparently liked a a couple of plays that you and Anne were in in New York. He subsequently directed you in London. Can you tell us a bit about uh, about John Gielgud and working working in London? I I spent a year doing an Okinawan in, in Her Majesty's Theatre for one year in London. My wife and I did several plays by Shiskel, Murray Shiskel, in the West End in London. 
mm-hmm. and in Brighton and in Cambridge and in Guildford, all around with that. Gilgood was a superb Shakespearean actor, and wonderful. And he came to see the, uh, Annie and me doing a, a play called The Typist and the Tiger. And he went, it was off-Broadway, and the, the, the box office people said, we, we're sold out, you can't, there's no seats. And he started to walk away, and the producer caught sight of him and ran up to him and said, of course, we'll come in and sit. And then when we were going to do it in London, he asked if we'd mind if he kind of helped us getting into the British family, so to speak. He would direct the, the one-act plays that we did. And he was fine. He was lovely. Well, we, when we were in England, we became members of their family, of the English acting family. I got quite a laugh out of the story in the book where you mentioned that uh, that your wife Anne was puzzled by a final speech that Gilgood has in, in one of these plays he was doing. She asked him what he meant, and he replies, I have no idea. Good God. She said, do you know what it means? He said, good God, no. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was a play by Olby, Edward Olby. Do, do you think, do you wonder sometimes about some actors, especially those doing Shakespeare, who really maybe don't understand the material? Yeah, but you see, Charles Lawton said to me, you know who would be a great Shakespearean actor? I said, who? He said, I'll tell you who. Jimmy Durante. <laughs> I said, Jimmy Durante? He said, yes. There's thou Cassius, now leap in with me in the, yonder point and swim to yonder point? He said, that's the rhythm that Shakespeare wanted. That's the rhythm. So whether he knew what the hell he was doing or not, you know, <laughs> some of them knew what they were doing as actors. Shakespeare is difficult. I just have a couple final questions. Uh, Is there any scenes looking back now you wish you'd have done differently? You can't do that. People say to me, which is your favorite play? And I say, I have three children. That's like saying, which one do you like best? Right, right. You don't know. In the middle of a play, after I've been playing six months, I suddenly say, oh my God, now I know why I'm saying it that way. A good actor is a magician. He gets on the stage, and the only thing that changes after you do it eight times a week and year in and year out, is the audience. They're neophytes. They're learning what and enjoying or not enjoying. And that's why acting is, is so, for me, gratifying. Well, Mr. Wallach, I wanted to save my favorite anecdote from your book uh, for last. Um, I, was, I was to my utter surprise that you noted in the book that the most fan mail you ever got for anything you did was an appearance on the old Batman television show, where you played Mr. Freeze. Yeah. You noted that you received $350 for your work, whereas in 1997, Arnold Schwarzenegger played Mr. Freeze in the movie version of Batman. He got $20 million. Right. You, uh, you read that in the newspaper. You were pretty unhappy about it. You were grousing about it, and then your wife made a suggestion. Yeah, she said lift weights. <laughs> so recently I was in California working, and on a, on a Sunday, I sit down, and there's Schwarzenegger. And I said, you know, I got $350 for Mr. Freeze, and you got $20 million. And he smiled. He said, $22 million. <laughs> Well, Eli Wallach's book is The Good, The Bad, and Me in My Anecdotage. It is currently out in trade paperback, and we think you'll find it to be a great read. Mr. Wallach, best wishes to you and your family. We thank you for speaking with us. Thank you so much. All righty. Bye. Bye-bye. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more. Stick around.